Our Father, it is with humble hearts that we come to you, the Lord who throughout the pages of Scripture manifests your great love to your people. And even when it seems like your hand is heavy upon your people, it's, it's because you love them, and it's because you want to turn them from the ways of unrighteousness to the ways of righteousness. And Lord, we know that uh, your hand is upon us each and every day as we profess our faith in you. And Lord, sometimes we don't understand the events which are transpiring in our lives, but Father, I pray that we will always rest in your great matchless love, knowing that your love never changes. Your love for us is as great now as it ever has been and ever will be because it is a perfect love. And we will know that you do all things in our lives for our good, even if they seem hard and even if they seem imponderable. Father, I pray that as we study what you did for Israel in this passage today, that you will be our teacher and that you will strengthen us through your word to be faithful to you. O Lord, we daily need your cleansing. We daily need your uh, new infilling of your spirit. And I pray that you will do that for us this hour. And through your word, we will receive the cleansing, the inspiration, the encouragement, the instruction that we need to live for you. We just thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for each one here in this room and pray your special, specific blessing on each one according to each need. In Christ's name, amen. amen. If you'll turn to the second chapter of the book of Judges, I'd like to read the first five verses to begin with this morning. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I had sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And it came about when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named the place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Here we have, early in the book of Judges, a brief account of momentary repentance and revival. And as you read this, it might remind you of times in the history of, Amer of the American church, you know, where the church says, uh, the Holy Spirit revival here, July 1st to 14 or something like that, you know, and where, where something comes and sweeps through and, and everybody's on a high and then two weeks later, they're back down where they were before. And that's something of what we read in, in this particular passage. It's really a fascinating passage because it reveals to us the lengths to which God will go to evoke obedience on the part of his people. The angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord here, is a theophany. It is a manifestation of God in the form of human flesh. This is clear from the wording of the passage. Because you, you'll notice, as I read there in the first verse, we're, we're told the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, and notice what he says. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant. Angels don't speak in the first person for God. 
Angels above all are humble in terms of their relationship to God. This is God in appearing in human flesh because he says, I did this, I did that. This angel Lord speaking for God is God in the flesh in human form, possibly in a form very similar to that which appeared to Joshua. Maybe not in military uniform, probably not, but in a form that was clearly identifiable as human. And what we're told in this passage is that the angel of the Lord walks from Gilgal to Bochim. God tread the soil of this earth. He walked up the escarpment. And we've talked about this enough now. You should be able to get the picture in your mind. Gilgal is 900 feet below sea level in the Jordan Valley, just north of the Dead Sea, which is 1,200 feet below sea level, close to 1,300. In fact, it's increasing below sea level because the Dead Sea is slowly drying up. In fact, if you go over there, and if you've looked at maps and you've seen the Dead Sea on the map, you go over there, you'll be a little bit disappointed because the Dead Sea is smaller now than it tends to show up on maps and older photographs because of the extraction of water that's being used by Israel and Jordan to water the, the um, crops and the orchards that they're uh, growing today. And as a result, there's less and less water flowing in the Dead Sea. And of course, it's very high evaporation rate there. So the water level is, is steadily and slowly falling there in the Dead Sea. And so as God walked up that slope to the top, where you get up to the top of the ridge, I mean, you're talking about 2,000 feet above sea level. So we're talking about a 3,000 foot climb. I'm sure it wasn't terribly hard for God, but nevertheless, uh, he, he made that journey. Now, by starting at Gilgal, God was saying something to his people. He was saying, this is where I brought you. This is your first camp in the land. This is where you circumcised all the males who had not been circumcised through the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. This is where you performed the very first Passover in the land of Canaan. This is the launching pad for the conquest. From Gilgal, you marched to the north, you marched to the south, you conquered the land. It was your base of operations. So I am starting from this place because I brought you here and I empowered you for all that you were able to do. So I'm marching from there to meet you at Bochim. Now, Bochim is mentioned only this time in all of Scripture. The name means weepers. The word Bochim in Hebrew means weepers. And it seems to be derived from the fact that as, you, as we read that passage this morning, as God spoke to them, we're told that they wept. In the end of verse 4, and the people lifted up their voices and wept. So the name of the place was Weepers, where the people wept. Now, if this be, is the case, which seems obvious, Bochim could be anywhere west of Gilgal. There is no place on the map today called Bochim. There's no way of identifying a location called Bochim because probably the name comes from this event and not from anything else. It was probably not a city. It was probably simply a place where God met his people. So where was this meeting place? Well, the most logical place would be near or at Shiloh because that was where the tabernacle was. Because think about this for a minute. The implication of this passage, the context of this passage is that God is speaking to the nation of Israel. They are hearing and they are weeping. Well, why would the nation of Israel be at this place called Bochim? 
I mean, they've already conquered the land. They're scattered through the land. They live here. They live there. They live way down in the Negev. They live clear up in the north and the slopes of Mount Hermon. Why would they be at one spot where God could meet them? Well, the most logical answer is that he came to Shiloh. And they were gathering at Shiloh because it was a worship time. And they were there to worship God, and he met them at that time. That seems to be the most logical understanding of this. So Bochim simply becomes the name of the place where God met them near Shiloh, and they wept because of the words they heard. Otherwise, God would have had to have sent word out through the whole land and try to gather them all together to some place in order for this to happen. So this seems to be the most logical scenario here. Now, what did the angel of the Lord come to do? Well, he came to confront Israel, to confront the Israelites because of their disobedience. He reminds them, and what is funny about Scripture is, you read through the Scripture and you will keep finding the same things happening. God keeps saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt and who brought you into the land. I mean, I haven't sat down to try to count how many times God says that, but he repeats it a lot of times in the Old Testament because the people were hard of hearing, dull of hearing, stiff-necked. Just look in a mirror and you'll recognize an Israelite uh, each and every day. That's why the truth comes through in Scripture over and over and over again. He reminded them that he had brought them out of Egypt. He, God, had brought them here. God had given them the covenant. God had arranged for them to conquer the land and empowered them to do it. It wasn't because they were a mighty people, because they weren't a mighty people. And God reminds them frequently of that. You were nobody. You were the smallest of all nations. Why should I pick you? Because you were so great? No. I picked you because in your weakness I could demonstrate my power. When we are weak, he is strong. His strength is demonstrated in our weakness. You probably, maybe as, as we do, uh, we every once in a while watch one of the biographies on uh, A&E. And it just seems to be that you can almost tell the story of these people before you ever see the biography. It's almost the same thing, you know, repeated over and over again, especially of people who are famous stars of some sort or another. They, they, they almost live as if there is a certain program you have to live if you're a star of some sort. And, uh, you know, you have to have five marriages and you have to have children who hate you and then you finally get reconciled. I mean, all kinds of things like this, it seems, that this has to happen. People who are born into this world with strength, with beauty, with intelligence, and I'm not downplaying anybody in this room here, but people who are extraordinary in these areas are cursed. Really, they're cursed because they usually tend to, to trust in that and they damn themselves by that very trust because they never come to the place of recognizing they need God. One of the things we find that occurs over and over again as we watch these biographies is that there is almost never any mention of God whatsoever. Now, it could be the bias of the programmers, obviously, but it would seem like these people never had a thought of God in their lives for the most part. So it's in our weakness that God's strength is demonstrated. And God is trying to convince Israel here that you are weak. You didn't conquer this land by your might. You conquered it by the might and the power of the Lord God. And therefore it is in me you must rest, you must trust, and you must find your strength. God then reviews the fact that he had commanded them to destroy the Canaanites and all their places of worship, and they had not done it.
Let me, let me just go back to review for a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. If, if sometime you really feel like you want to be encouraged and, and strengthened and given some real sense of, of God's power in the lives of his people, the first 10 or so chapters of the book of Deuteronomy are really, really powerful and encouraging words. But let me read the first few verses of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Notice the word utterly destroy. Not, not make covenants with them. Not say, well, we'll make slaves out of them. Utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. This was the command that God gave to Israel through Moses while they were still in the wilderness. God reviewed this. He renewed it through Joshua. And as the conquest carried on, God was with them to enable them to do this. But now God is confronting them as the angel of the Lord, and he's saying, you have not done this. He points out their flagrant disobedience. And he underscores it with the dreadful question that we read in that passage. What is this you have done? And when you read that, you could almost say that God was standing there incredulous. Now, of course, God can't be incredulous because God is omniscient. He knows all things. Nothing ever surprises him. But, but certainly, this was a great disappointment to God. Again, you know, you can be disappointed even though you know what's going to happen that it happens, <laughs> I suppose you could say. At least for us it would be, maybe not for God. But what is God saying? He's saying, in effect, after all, all I have done for you over these past 50 years, across, you know, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, meeting you at Mount Sinai, con uh, defeating all the uh, peoples that attacked you in the wilderness, providing you water, providing you food, bringing you in the land, conquering the land. I've done all these things for you. How could you not fulfill your promise to obey me? What you see in this passage, I believe, is the immense love of God. He loved, loves his people with such a great love that he wanted to pour out his blessing. I mean, God wants to pour out his blessing. He wants to, to do these things for his people. And therefore, he was saddened by their refusal to walk in obedience, by their following the ways of the pagan Canaanite gods and, and live their lifestyle and intermarrying with them. He is totally saddened by this. Not because he feels like he's slighted in some way. It's because he wants to bless them. He wants to demonstrate his great love. You know, so many people, this happened to me when I was way back in, in studying at uh, university and he wanted to do. He, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no more. For the Lord your God is the God above, 
is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. This is towards the end of verse 18 of Deuteronomy 10. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow. He shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. You shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. I mean, he promises in, in Deuteronomy to do these wonderful things for people. He says, you will sit under your vine and no one will cause you dismay. There will be no enemy in your land. There will be no wild beasts in your land. There'll be no disease in your land. There'll be no grasshoppers eating your crops. If you walk obediently with me, that was God's promise. Now, he's not promising them paradise on earth. Uh, certainly, you know, people will get sick and accidents would happen and normal things of life. But the tragedies that they would experience with the book, which the book of Judges is all about, would not be theirs had they simply walked in obedience to him. So God is here personally confronting them in the form of a human being, a theophany, at this place called Bochim, where they were weeping. And, and he gives this message to them and asks this question. And the consequences of their disobedience is spelled out by him there in verse 3 of Judges 2. Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. In other words, I'm going to give you over to what you've chosen to follow. God was saying to them that because they had not excised the whole cancer, it was going to come back, and it would destroy them. As I was thinking about that, this, this passage came to mind. It's not on your outline, but you read it, just a couple of verses in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 11 and 12, the Lord says this, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table, table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, these are gods, I will destine for you the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because I called and you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. You did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Notice what he says. You chose. You chose that in which I did. It wasn't they accidentally fell into it. They chose it. They chose that in which God did not delight. There's nothing to indicate that God could not, uh, that Israel could not have reversed the sentence that God had spoken at this point. It seems like they kind of start in that direction because they cry, they weep, and they even make a sacrifice. And it becomes known as Bochim, the place of the weepers, as a result. But it appears that this repentance is either shallow or not lasting because the revival is but momentary and has no lasting influence. Instead of changing their ways, what happens is, is, I think, aptly summarized by a man by the name of F. Duane Lindsay in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, where he says, intermarriage with the Canaanites led to tolerance of and participation in their idolatry. You know, see, the first step in that direction is tolerance. 
The form of their disobedience, which incurred divine wrath, became in turn the form of punishment placed on them. In other words, God gave them over. You want to worship those gods? Go ahead. The snare of Canaanite idolatry anticipated the cycles of the days of the judges. And that's what we have to look forward to, right? As we study further in the book of Judges, we see these cycles, one cycle after another. They, they repent, they turn to God, they turn their back on God, God brings uh, you know, a people in to oppress them, they, they, they weep to God, and so he raises up a deliverer, and he, re he releases them from, from the oppressor, they turn away from God, he brings an oppressor, I mean, you know, it gets after a while to be like they have a very dull mind and a very hard heart. But we, of course, cannot stand in judgment on the Israelites for this. Because I think if we're honest, we recognize this in our own lives. Hopefully, um, maybe our hearts are not so hard and, and hopefully our, our tears are, are more meaningful because we have the whole counsel of God available to us, which they did not have, which is an, an excuse for them. But uh, we, we have less excuse, I suppose we could say. Well, let, let's read on in the second chapter of Judges, verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for them, for, for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance at timnath Haraz, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Now, You'll, you'll notice, if, if you remember the passage, which is just a, couple, a page back or so, um, almost identical passage is in the 24th chapter of Joshua, where we read in the 30th verse there, they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Sarah. And yet in this passage, you read that it's timnath Haraz. Now, it's, it's not a mistake, of course. timnath Sarah means the place or the precinct remaining. And we talked about that, you remember? After all the land had been allotted, then Joshua took his, uh, his, his inheritance, which was this little hill in, in what is today the, or what became the Ephraimite territory. And it was the place remaining. It was the place nobody else wanted. It was the place that God had preserved for him. But here it's called timnath Haraz in the book of Judges. What does that mean? Well, the possibilities here are two. First, that it refers to a previous name that was known by in the days of the Canaanites. And often you find in Scripture that a Canaanite name for a place is still mentioned in Scripture because Haraz means sun. So it would be the precinct of the sun, which means, of course, could be that it was a place where maybe sun god was worshipped. Or it could mean the place, the precinct of the sun, of the man who stood above the valley of Elon and prayed that God would stop the sun in the sky for 24 hours or whatever the length time was, and he did. So the place honoring the man whom God used to hold the sun back for a day. Either way could be the meaning here. This passage is, as I've noted, virtually identical to the passage in the 24th chapter of um, Joshua. What this does is give us the fact that you're there's a transition from Joshua into Judges. It's a sequel, in other words. After Joshua gave his final challenge and exhortation to the people, he turned the leadership of Israel over to the tribal elders. Because, you see, the plan for God, 
the plan of God was that Israel would be ruled as a theocracy. That is, from God would come the word that would guide the, the priesthood and guide the elders in leading Israel in being a theocracy, a, a people committed to obeying and serving God. Now these elders were the people who had been with Joshua through the wilderness wandering and in the conquest. So they knew the miracles. They had seen the Jordan River parted. They had watched the walls of Jericho come crashing down. They had seen the great victory over the Southern Confederacy and the greater victory over the Northern Confederacy. They had witnessed God's miracles. They knew them firsthand. Unfortunately, of course, beginning with the rule of Joshua and then under the tribal elders beyond Joshua, um, some Canaanites were allowed to remain in the land. And you remember that began clear back at Gibeon where Joshua and the elders were taken in by the Rus of the Gibeonites. Oh, we've come from so far away to make a peace treaty and they're the next town along the line. You know, that's bad reconnaissance, of course, but it also indicates lack of seeking the mind of the Lord in this matter. But during Joshua's time and the, and the time of the elders, Israel at least sought to separate themselves from the Canaanites and from their gods. And they did destroy Asherim and the, the groves and, and the various altars on the hilltops around. But they didn't destroy all of them. The latter portion of verse 10, which we read, introduces the era of the judges. Because it says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Notice, they not only didn't know God, they didn't know the work which he had done for Israel. Thus, we have the very first generation after the generation that had completed the conquest and occupied the land, already beginning to experience the consequences that the Lord had given or expressed back up in verse 3, where he said that I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Already, I mean, we're not talking about 100 years down the line. We're talking about the very next generation from the generation of the conquest from Joshua's generation. How can this be? How can it be that this generation does not know the Lord nor his works? What does this really mean? Well, for one thing, it means that the generation of Joshua apparently at least failed to teach adequately the next generation who God was and what he had done and what it meant. According to the commands which the Lord gave, and, and when we went through this, the, the life of Moses, we talked about uh, Deuteronomy, particularly chapter 6, where God had said through, through Moses to the people and made it very clear to them, they were to diligently teach their children God's word in every single setting. They were to teach them when they got up. They were to teach them when they went to bed. They were to teach them at work. They would teach them at home. They were to be constantly teaching and modeling the word of God to their, their children. In effect, they were to confront their children with God's law, even if they had to literally write it on their gateway and on their doorpost. And you know what happens, of course. People start making um, talisman out of that kind of thing. You know, stick a little piece of the Word of God up on your doorpost and touch it as you go in and touch it as you go out. You know, it kind of, becomes kind of like a little uh, routine blessing 
rather than understanding where the real meaning here is, and that is that they were to constantly imbue their children with the truth of what God had said and to live that truth before their kids so the kids would understand and learn it also. On top of this, of course, God had prepared all kinds of teaching opportunities, and we've emphasized these as we went through the book of Joshua. What in the world did they build a pile of stones in the middle of the Jordan River for when the Jordan River was parted? So that Israel would remember. Why did they build another pile on the Canaan side? So that when the kids would come by, they'd say, what's this pile of stone for? And the parents could say, it is because this demonstrates the miracles of the God of all gods of the universe and what he has done for us as his people. I mean, it was one thing after the other. Remember the walls of Jericho. What kind of a testimony were they? You know, why are the walls like that? Because God knocked them down. And, and, and the um, stones, why did Joshua carve the law on the stones there at Shechem? Just for the fun of it? No, I don't think so. It was there so that people, as they walked by Shechem, they could see the word of God carved right on the great stones there in between Ebal and Gerizim. Even when the Transjordanian tribes built that altar on the Canaan side of the Jordan River, remember there was nearly a war over that, even that was a memorial that they could remember the unity of all the tribes in the worship of the Lord their God. So that the, the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan wouldn't be kept away from coming to the tabernacle at Shiloh. We are brothers. And then, of course, the greatest teaching tool of all, the tabernacle itself which stood at Shiloh and all of the great celebrations, Passover, the Day of Atonement, and all the great celebrations that God gave Israel. What for? Just to keep them busy? No. To constantly remind them and enable them to teach their children. This is who God is and this is why we love Him and this is why we obey Him. Constant reminders of the God of Israel. So how could this next generation not know? Well, it could only come, I would think, at least partly through some kind of criminal neglect on the part of the conquering generation to not faithfully teach their children or faithfully demonstrate to their children that God is the only God in the universe. Now, of course, knowing about God and about His works is one matter. But knowing Him personally is, is obviously yet another matter. They could have taught their children about the Lord. They could have demonstrated the truth uh, of him to them, but that they chose, the next generation chose not to believe and not to obey and not to pay attention. That's always, of course, possible. And we all know how this happens, possibly in some of your lives or at least in families you know where children are raised equally and yet out of a group of children, three may choose to obey and one may choose to rebel. Why? You know, is it because they weren't taught as well? No, not necessarily that at all. Uh, because there is in, in mankind a spirit of rebellion. But in a whole generation? Well, maybe. In Romans, the first chapter, Paul makes it clear that a person can know about, about God but reject Him personally. Paul points out that the wrath of God is very deserved by unrighteous people because they rejected the truth that God had revealed to them in their conscience and in all of creation. And he says that 
in Paul's words, even though they knew about God, they did not honor him as God. That could have been the epitaph of that generation. They knew about God in the sense that they had heard, but they didn't know God and they didn't pay any attention to his works. Because they refused to pay attention to God and his works, this generation will face great tragedy. And the tragedy will be repeated generation after generation after generation. And as you go through the book of Judges, you discover God raises up 12 judges to bring Israel back, to deliver them out of his great love. And then they turn their back and walk away from him again. And then he raises up another judge. And on and on the story goes. It demonstrates the patience, the mercy, and the love of our God. And it helps us to see in the Old Testament the illustration of Jesus' words to Peter when Peter says, well, how many times shall I forgive them? Seven. He thought he was being very, you know, magnanimous. And Jesus said, 70 times seven. In effect, uh, there's no limit to the number of times you must forgive. And that's what you see in the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, you see the God of love forgiving his people and drawing them back. There is a day, of course, where it hits the wall. You know, you run out of life eventually, and, and uh, if, if a person has chosen to reject God and to go into eternity that way, that is his choice, and God is, is greatly saddened. God is not delighted by the death of anyone because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so as we read and study through the book of Joshua, we see that, that, that tremendous love of God being poured out into his people as he gives them opportunity and opportunity and opportunity to repent and turn. And he demonstrates his love and his power and his deliverance to them. And yet they keep rebelling. But the good point is eventually there arises a man by the name of David who in spite of being a man with uh, very clay feet is a man who, who becomes the precursor and the man for whom his own Messiah would be named the son of David. And so, you know, it's not like God just slams the book shut and says, that's it, because he doesn't. And the whole scripture uh, keeps opening the door of God's love and drawing people to himself. No matter how far they've gone, how far did they go? I mean, they worshiped pagan gods, and we've talked about how vile that is. I mean, we talk today about people who go out and, you know, mass murderers and people who just live lives of, of sequential lust, and we think how terrible they all got to go to hell. God kept rescuing people out of that. I mean, that's what this, is, this pagan worship is all about. It's baby sacrifice, uh, all kinds of prostitution, evil stuff. And yet God would rescue them if they would repent out of it. No one has gone so far and yet remained alive that God cannot pull him back or her back and rescue that person. And of course, that's our great hope today for our loved ones, our friends who are lost and, and many of them heading in the opposite direction of God. We know as we pray that God is at work and there's every possibility in the world that he will halt them and bring them back because it's happened time and time again. And that is our great hope. Well, in uh, the last half of the second chapter, we'll, we'll do that next week because we have a, a quite a few things to pray for here this morning. But uh, as we look at that, we will discover how God's prediction begins to come about. The idolatry of his people brings them into servitude to pagan, heathen people.